Welcome to Bale Street. Hosted by Danny Moses and Ira Juddelson, this is the show that takes a larger-than-life look at the world of crime and finance. Learn more and subscribe today at BaleStreet.com. Hello and welcome to Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Juddelson. This week on Bale Street, we're going to talk about Promise, which is a new bail app that was just created, uh, invested $3 million. Jay-Z's involved with that. Correct. Jay-Z and a few other venture capital firms have put money towards this app, and it's basically uh, an app that helps people get out on bail and then lets the counties monitor them for small-time criminals. So we can talk about that. Yeah, I guess it's part of the bail reform situation that's trying to go on here across we'll America. On We're also going to have Gerard Maroney, who is a friend of Ira's. He's a criminal defense attorney. You could call him the mobster lawyer. Would that I, w- be- I wouldn't call him a mobster lawyer. I call him an alleged mobster, an alleged mobster <laughs> lawyer who actually has a new television show called The Street Attorney. With great show. I've watched I, all of the insert. It's good. You haven't watched anything. But I, did. I did. It's great. I like no, it. I anyway. like it. And lastly, Bank America paid $42 million on a settlement for high-frequency trading violations, and I'm going to go full Monty on this when, we're, when I come back after Gerard. So yeah. with that, let's begin and talk about Promise. So I... Re- uh, came out a couple weeks ago in the trade rags on Wall Street that Jay Z, who had already know had written an editorial on Father's Day last year about Correct. the bail system, how unfair it is to certain people, which it is. I think you would agree. Well, I, I let, let, let me stop you here, okay? Because we're going to go back and forth a little bit and, uh, about this. I, obviously, I'm a bail bondsman, and I make my money from commercial bail bonds. But I happen to agree that there should be some sort of reform some sort of reform to some of the lower level crimes that are nonviolent misdemeanor crimes, which I believe Jay-Z is involved with here. And But what people don't understand about the situation is, is when you're a bondsman and you are getting involved in commercial bail bonds, you have to understand that we are responsible on getting people to court. And where people don't understand on some of these bail reforms, that what happens is, is you let these people out on no bail, ROR, which is released on your own cognizance. And then there's no repercussion if they come back. And then we're sending our warrant squad, our people, to go get them. And it's costing city taxpayers a lot of money to go send two people to go get somebody because he jumped the turnstile or because he got caught trespassing or another low-level misdemeanor crime. Now, I I love Jay-Z. I love his music. I, I think he's a phenomenal guy. I think he's done amazing, amazing things for his community. I love what he's done in the world as far as helping people and getting involved in different charities. But he has to understand with promise, which happens to be a good idea, that there's got to be some also repercussion when people do not do not show back up, and we're sending our people to go get them, which is warrant squads, police officers, city tax tape. Let me uh, counteract that, because you know this better than anybody, but okay. Promise actually did a study, and they, had, they have the stats to prove it, that if you incarcerate someone, the cost of actually processing them through and keeping them in prison during the months lead up to whatever violation that occurred outweighs the risk of that person leaving flight, and they're flying out on the bail. Hold on, let me finish. Uh, uh. So in this case, they also did a study that that uh, Latinos and blacks have higher bail set for the same exact crimes that whites commit, period. That's proven. They take the same crime in the same jurisdictions and show that one bail at 700 bucks, it's $300 for a white person. So this is trying to rectify the unfairnesses in the system. And let me just tell you exactly what this app does, just so we're clear, and then okay. I want you to comment on it. So... If a person gets arrested and it's a minor misdemeanor, it's a, well, 
misdemeanor. Well, I don't know how minor it is. Misdemeanor crime. A non-violent misdemeanor crime. Give me an example of, of trespassing. Trespassing. Okay. And they set the bail at $500, which this person can't afford and has no assets to prove. Okay. So they're stuck in prison in the Correct. system. They can't get out. They can't Correct. work their job. They, everything goes down. Okay. This app, actually the county, just signed up a county in California. I don't know which one signs up for it. So the county puts all the stuff that goes into the process onto the, onto the app. That, and, the, and the person who's arrested has court reminder dates sent to him. He has job finding applications sent to him. He has a way to kind of help him in life, in general, okay. counseling and so forth. Okay. Um, so this is a way, and it can lower the cost and make it, quote, more fair. I don't know if it's going to take on, but I just want to make sure I, you listen, knew. Listen, again, I'm a bail bondsman. I've done some high-profile cases. I've, we've talked about this, okay? And Jay was in the system a long time ago himself, okay? And I agree that people should not go through the system, okay, and cost the city a hundred and something thousand dollars a year to house an inmate with three squares a day and being incarcerated on cases uh, that should not go through the system. I agree. But where it might lead to, people have to understand that there has to be a repercussion for someone's actions. So you mentioned they're sending him out tweets or, or, or texts about job. How do we know this guy's going for those job applications? We're sending him out reminder dates. Well, if he doesn't, if he's ROR and there's no repercussion for him to come back to court, how do you know he's going to come back? They want to put a GPS on the phone also. How, who pays for the GPS? Well, if he's got the phone, the phone itself is the GPS. So they oh, can find oh, him where he is. I'm oh, just saying these are low fly. Obviously, there's instances where someone has committed an alleged serious crime where this so, is not applied. Listen, it's not we, a we, terrible we, idea, it's but not, there's a lot of questions. Right, exactly. And I'm, I'm all for it. Um, so, again, so I, we got Rock Nation invested, right? First round capital, eight VC, Kapoor Capital are the big investors in this. I should be on the board here. Well, I think you need to I, exactly. So this is a good Bale Street idea. I mean, you need to get involved with a company because Absolutely. it does not cannibalize on your business. You can actually help and advise, and and maybe if there's a chance in here where some other process could be automated that can actually help well, there you are different monitor. Ba- there your are people. different funds and different bail reforms that are going across America. Okay, some that I totally don't believe in whatsoever and some that I do believe in because, you know, there's CGA. okay, and that's a criminal justice association downstairs that interview a lot of different applicants before they come up for bail. And these people uh, basically say, hey, we believe he's a good candidate for release on his own recognizance, which is ROR. This guy should, you know, is not a good, you know, candidate for that because where he's living if does he have any type of stability here? Is he a risk of flight? Is he a danger to the community? Whatever it might be that they're testing downstairs. Now, I'm on board with a lot of these reforms because I do not believe somebody should sit in the system for 500 or or $1,000 bail. But again, nobody's privy to that person's rap sheet. And if that person had seven different times that he's warranted to court, even though they were nonviolent cases, why should he be given another chance to send our people out to go find him that's costing the city he money? He shouldn't, but I would imagine that would be now recorded and there should, the people should well, figure again, that out. Well, again, you're not, we're not privy to a lot of different things that happen downstairs. We're not privy. And listen, judges and DAs are, are, you know, are, are sitting on this bench and they're very respectable people that are going up. And they, listen, I, I think a DA is not sitting there asking for a $1,000 bail if the guy's never been in trouble before and he got caught you know, harassing somebody at a bar or he got caught drinking an open condition, whatever the, the case might be. It's, it, what comes down to being is every case should stand on its individuality. And 
violent cases should not have even brought up in something like this Agreed. or major grand larceny or major drug cases or or anything major sexual cases so again what uh rock nation and jay-z is onto i happen to think done the right way can work and can save a lot of people jail time it could save a lot of money for the system and I'm for it. Who knows? Maybe I'll jump on the uh, the, the. It'll give board. the it'll give the snitch cover too, because you always wonder how that how did that guy get out? You're like, oh, he's got to be he's got to be the snitch. Well, he's got to be rolling. I, I mean, you, you know, know, I mean, but, it, usually yeah. uh, when there's an alleged informant involved, usually they set a bail on an alleged informant. It's a little lower than the average bail, but it, it's still something that throws off the uh, the the camouflage there. So you'll swipe left for bail. Is what you're saying? It's like Tinder for bail. Correct. Exactly. <laughs> All right. As we continue here on Bail Street, we're excited to be chatting with Gerard Maroney, and we're going to get a first-hand account of uh, his dealings with the mob as a lawyer. Alleged mob. Alleged mobster's lawyer, and talk about his new show, The Street Attorney. Which happens to be phenomenal. And we'll be back. Welcome back to Bale Street. We're excited to be chatting with Gerard Maroney, a famed lawyer from Queens who represented some of Ira's famed clients as well. We're talking about that. And also Gerard is uh, making a show called The Street Attorney, and I had actually watched a couple of those episodes. Uh, they look great, and that just got picked up by the Pop Network, so we can certainly chat about that. But with that, I'd like to introduce Gerard and maybe Ira. Take it from here. How you doing, Gerard? I'm doing awesome. Nice to be on. I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, as I... I gave you a shot last week to talk to you a little bit about, you know, obviously me and Gerard did a uh, big case last week and uh, we started mm-hmm. talking about, uh, you know, different shows and I told him about what I was possibly doing and he was telling me what he was doing and I said, why don't you come on the podcast? And Gerard, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got started in the business as a uh, defense attorney, who you started working for in the beginning and, uh, you know, how you got to the level you're at now. Well, I, I've been an attorney for almost 20 years, about 18 years I'm admitted. But prior to that, growing up in Ridgewood, Queens, um, I'm of Italian, I'm of Sicilian and Italian descent, and I speak Sicilian dialect, which becomes very important in my life in the future, you know? So I I always wanted to be, you know, I I grew up in the neighborhood, if you know what I mean. Your neighborhood. Kind of the streets around around the same types of people I kind of represent today, you know? But I think I had a mom that always pushed me to stay out of trouble. And, and stay in school and, and do the try to do the right thing, which was not an easy thing to do where I come from. And um, I thought I was very attracted to local politics. And I met an attorney as a young man. I was I think eighteen by the name of Mario Malerba. Uh, he's I, I think he's still, he's still around. I remember Mario really really early Yeah, you I did work. Mario, I did work right? for Mario actually, in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually at eighteen or nineteen, I used to drive Mario around. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I started. So from driving him around and wow. going around and collecting fees and things like that, I started, you know, answering the phones in the office and then running around for court and, and filing motions. And that's how I got my start. Is that what you call VIG fees? <laughs> I, yeah, I okay. guess. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they, those guys <laughs> ran their shop much different than the way I run mine. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Damn sure. <laughs> but um, it's funny because actually Mario got into a fight with someone. On Myrtle Avenue, when I was a kid, 
And I was there that night and I kind of like stepped in front of the guy and I, and I gave him like a one, two and I knocked the guy in his ass and Mario's like, you want a job? I'm like, yeah, I want a job. Absolutely. So that's how I started Mar- working for Mario Malerba when I was 19. You threw your hands on the street and then you started yeah, driving yeah. them. And the next thing you know, you want to top defense attorneys in all of New York. That's a nice little, uh... well, there's about a 20 year span between that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's funny growing up in, in, Queens and really being in the center of so much action at 26, 27, I mean, I was thrown into heavy, heavy cases when I became an attorney. I mean, I got involved with heavy federal stuff at like 27. I mean, right. I was looking back now, I was a baby, you know, like there were some cases I was dying to get on. Like I was on Joe Messina's case in 2003 and that indictment, I represented a good, good, tough guy by the name of Danny Mangeli who stood up one of the only guys on that case who stood up. And it was like, I would give my right arm to get on it and my left arm to get off of it. Yeah, of course. That's I mean, how crazy those indictments were in those days. And you remember that, Ira. Yeah, I do. That's how long you and I have been running together. You know? And, uh, yeah, that's how I got my start. And then just, you know, listen, always doing the right thing by people and being honest and working hard and just, you know, getting results. And you get results from people, you know, they keep coming back. I think being a neighborhood guy um, is, is such an asset to... You, what you do because hey listen we're both in the same business in a way and letting these neighborhood guys know that we go to bat for them and that you know we're yeah. going to do everything we can me in my end to to get them out and you and your end to represent them through you know all yeah. these different muddy waters is, is is what makes them come to you and what makes them come to me yeah absolutely and, and you know and, and I, you and i and I were, we're, we're very similar where it's like a system of respect and a system of like honor that you and i you know deal with day to day and everything is our reputation. Everything is our word. Everything is who we are and the, and the respect that we, you know, that we hold on the street. And that's how we, you know, it's how we make our living. We're, we're a dying, you and I were a dying breed because there's a lot of guys that are not like that. I agree. Today. Um, you guys so doing- yeah, I mean, I went, you know, we're all definitely old school. You know, I'm a young guy. I'm only 44, but definitely we came from the old school. Yeah. Although I don't think the tough streets of, uh, Westchester and Mamaroneck compared to the tough streets of Queens, but you can you relay that. I heard of those guys. Yeah, we might have, we might have locked horns with the with the Marinette, he, Marinette he, boys. Those Mamaroneck boys were tough. Yeah, Arthur <laughs> Avenue was twenty minutes away. That was about as close as I had. What are some of the high profile cases that you and Ira have actually worked on, kind of together, where you where he bailed out some of your clients and maybe talk about uh, some of your we've worked on a ton of cases. We've oh. done a lot of OC cases together, Ira and yes. I. Yes. Um, God, I mean, she, we just run so many things. I mean, I always went to Ira because Ira always did right. I mean, Ira is just a, he's just an honorable guy, you know, and the thing with Ira and I was like, I was like, Gerard, this guy's a good guy. I'm like, yeah, he's a good guy. And that, for Ira, speaks volumes. And I'm like, and I'm, and I'm like, Ira, you know, I don't know. And Ira knows what to do, you know? So it's like the rela- the relationship that he and I have is so important. Um, God, God, we've handled so many cases together. I mean, just now. We just tried to get out, um, I think, what is it, Peter's uh, son uh, in Queens, but we ended up leaving him in and taking that bid, right? Because uh, we just didn't think it was the right, right thing to yes, do. That's right, yes. That's right. You was were involved in Yeah, it was a $2 million, case, so, dollar, $2 million right? dollar case. Correct. And then I remember getting a phone call from, from John, and he said, you know, what can we do here? And then me and you talked about it, and you thought the best thing to do was kind of leave him in and let him do his time. That's right. So, so John Gotti's grandson the son of Peter Gotti um, got arrested in, in Queens County. Um, he, he, he went felony, oxycodone, heavy, heavy duty case. 
he was remanded for a long, long time. He was remanded for about a year. But finally, I did a writ habeas corpus, and Judge Lopresto gave us um, a $2 million bail. And um, I was gonna, he was going to pull the trigger on the bail, actually. But the family decided to leave him in because we were so close to a deal, to a disposition. There was no way Ira was happy about that, by the way. I was a little sad Christmas <laughs> well, Eve about that one, but I, I understood the terms here, Gerard. It was the best for you. Yeah, what's a hundred grand? Ira could have needed. Yeah, that's good. It was around that much, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you easy come, easy go. You, you win some, you lose some. You know? We'll get him back. We'll get him back. I'm sure he'll do something soon. So, no, no, he won't. Ira and I actually just did that, that tow truck case together. Yes. Uh, he got out two guys. And that was like that was a Genovese case, actually. The, the, the heavy on that that tow truck case out of Manhattan District Attorney's Office was uh, was a Genovese guy. So that Ira and I just finished that bail together. So we, we worked quite often together. Gerard, can you explain to the audience and to me in particular, you know, when when the alleged mobsters commit alleged crimes, why it sometimes it, it, it ends up in federal court and sometimes state court? I understand if it crosses state lines, it probably goes federal. But can you just explain that a little bit. Yeah, you know, there's, there's no rhyme or reason. I, I, I'm not, I'll, I'll put it in this way. Every agency, and, you know, I say it with all due respect, every agency wants their pound of flesh. So every county is going to bring one or two, two or three, I would say, rackets, organized crime type of cases a year. And then the feds just, that's all they do. You know, so everyone wants their pound of flesh, per se. So there's no really rhyme or reason why the feds would pick up one case and the state would pick up another. It's basically, they're all kind of like jockeying for the same, you know, guys out there, so to speak. And, and whoever they kind of fall across, you know, that agency picks it up. Like for, with Gotti, um, I had him in Queens County State Court, the Queens County District Attorney's Office. Heavy, heavy duty case. I mean, it was a kingpin charge. The kid was looking at life, and we ultimately got him eight years. And then the day that he was supposed to be designated and go upstate, the feds picked him up on an arson. And the arson, arson and bank robbery is generally a state case, but the feds picked him up because he was more connected to, like, the, you know, he was connected to, like, the, the Asaro case and the, that banana, you know, case. So that's why the feds picked him up. Is it a state budget issue or money issue in terms of state doesn't have the resources and federal government does in well, certain times, or...? I think that's a, I think that definitely has uh, it comes into play often where the state does I mean the state state certainly does not have the, the budget that the feds do I mean the feds have unlimited resources I mean they go you know the government goes to the countries I mean it's just you know they they have unlimited resources and what is the current state of the alleged mobster universe I know there's five families kind of still out there but what would you say what has changed in the last five ten years in terms of businesses and so forth, or you know, is it dying? I think, I got to tell you, I think, and the way I, what I see is in 2003, 2004, I saw them really getting hurt bad with indictments. Um, a lot of guys started coming out, you know, maybe in 08, 2010, and I, I personally have seen it getting busier. I, I think a lot, there's a lot of guys out in the street now. I think maybe the, the quality of, you know, that wise guy is not, where it was in, you know, 1960, 1970, even in the 80s. But you still got some, seri- you got some serious guys out there, man. You know, you got some tough, tough guys out there that'll do time. They, you got guys out there that'll do, oh, do, yeah. do time standing on their uh, head. On their head, one second. They, 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 they believe in it. You got some tough men out there still, which I got a lot of respect for a guy. You know, listen, you know, these guys, they are who they are. And, 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 mo- and, and a lot of them, when, you know, when it comes down, they take it like a man. 
Gerard, let me ask you a question. Out of all the cases that you've done over the years, and you've done a lot, um, what would be your favorite type of case that you would love to either go to trial on or, or, or work with the DA's office on? Would it be, would it be a, a money laundering case? Would it be a sexual abuse case? Would it be an alleged mobster case, a robbery? What case do you really want to dig your teeth into and just say, wow, I just really want to really jump into a case like this? You know what I like? I like, I try a lot of state cases. Um, that's just the way it came down for me. I'm much busier at the state than I am with the feds. A lot, of, a lot of federal guys can't even afford attorneys anymore because they take all their assets. So a lot of them go to CGA or whatnot or legal aid. I love an assault trial because there's so many variables to that. There's, you know, there's, there's no DNA. It's all human testimony. And when I can get a, a person on the stand and cross-examine a person that they might think is their star witness, and all of a sudden I find out shit about them that nobody knew, and I'm cross-examining the hell out of them, and I make them look like an idiot, right. and, and, and their, their word quickly, quickly becomes worthless. That's what I do. That's my specialty. I'm a, I'm a cross-examiner. I, I'll just tear you apart. I'll crucify you on the stand. When I'm cross-examining. You know, and I'm so, you know, and I got shot when I was a kid. I walked with a cane. I was paralyzed when I was a kid. Someone went to shoot my little sister, and I got hit in the spine. So they don't see me coming, man. I come, I come to call with my cane, and I'm, you know, really respectful. Gerard, Gerard. I, I mean, yeah. now that you brought that up, and you know, I love you, and we're friends. We, you know, we we break yes. bread, and we're friends. I mean, that must be such a tough uh, a way of looking at things going back. Because I remember you told me the story that you were a kid and you went to protect your sister, and 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 you got right. shot. And I mean, it, it, you live with that every single day. And who? And I didn't even ask. Did yeah. they ever find the guy? I mean, whatever happened with that? The guy did. Yeah, he did a little time. The guy he got out. I personally didn't press it so much, you know, because you're a street um, guy, and I get but it. He did a little bit of time. The guy, you know, but he, you know, I shot his spine, and you know, it was, I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed to be who I am today. The the injury and that that challenge. I, I didn't want to be a victim of my circumstance, you know. And that's, and that's really what drove me to get better and to start walking again. And that's the same attitude I take into a fight with me, into a courtroom. You know, it's like, you know, I, I want to protect, I'm a protector. And I think all criminal defense attorneys, to a large extent, are guys that like to protect others. We're underdogs, you know, especially a guy from like a kid like me from Queens. And, and we're protectors, you know, like somebody's, the, the, the state is going up against them and, and you know, and they're, they're taking the punches. I come in and I protect them. I do the best I can to, to do the right thing by them and, and, you know, and get a fair result. And me getting hurt, I embrace the challenge. Uh, it's hard. You know, when I'm in Brooklyn and I'm in Queens and I have four or five different appearances on a day and I'm humping it, man, and my leg is hurting and I'm running around. and You know, it's, it's rough, but you just have to have a strong mental and positive mind. You got to... Um, Thank God for your blessings and not look at things that, you know, not, don't look at the things you don't have in life. Look at the blessings that you do. And I think when you change that, that's that little perspective. I think life, you know, life gets, is, is, is better, you know, and you live a positive life, you know. And, and, I, and, I, and I like to try to uh, infect my clients on that as well. Like, I, you know, like a lot of these kids in the street, you know, a lot of gang kids, a lot of kids that start with bad circumstances, whatnot, you know, like they can't bullshit me. And, you know, I, I, I ain't come from privilege. I walk with a cane. So I, you know, I have my own struggles. So they can't look at me and say, well, I can't do it. If I could become a lawyer and I could do well and become successful, then any kid that I represent could do the same. You know, they, they probably don't have it as worse, as bad as I have, you know? 
Gerard, you have any uh, Wall Street cases that uh, you could talk about um, that maybe have gone down? I don't represent guilty guys like that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I only I only represent the, the not guilty. I only represent the I only represent the persecuted. Man, now I actually don't have any Wall Street. You only like when <laughs> money doesn't have a trail. <laughs> right. Hey, Gerard, tell us a little bit about the show. Tell us about your show that's that's coming out because I know we we talked about it a couple of years ago. Tell us a little bit about uh, what yeah. the show entails and and you know when it's coming out and uh, you know what you're looking to do with it. Yeah, so about a year ago we did a YouTube channel, uh, YouTube show called The Street Attorney. I did six episodes, it was short little episodes, and it was basically about what I do on a day to day basis. It's like the bullshit that I deal with the organized crime guys, and then you know the 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 the, the neighborhood stuff, the favors, and then coming home to my kids and my wife and just trying to balance all that, you know, and I wanted to give the world a glimpse in, into like my life. It's kind of like Sopranos meets uh, Law and Order, which has really never been done before. And it's so contemporaneous. It's like, it, you know, it's real. I mean, it's real clients, it's real stuff, it's real situations. I might tweak the name here and there just to protect the innocent, you know, but for the most part, everything is very, very real. And, and CBS saw it. And it, they, they brought me down to L.A. and I met with the head of reality TV, a uh, guy, a fellow by the name of Gen Mayer, who was a great guy, and he fell in love with the show. And CBS owns the Pop Network. They actually own half of the Pop Network, and the Pop Network picked us up. And I'm currently, right now, as we speak, doing the, the pilot episode for Pop. Okay. Is it is it an hour long? Getting thirty minutes long? It looks like it's going to be a 30-minute show, which is about 22 minutes of actual airtime, not including commercials. And uh, right now, I mean, you can go on YouTube and check it out. Just Google the street. Uh, yeah, I saw the one with the comes up. saw the one where the yeah. the guy that came in from uh, Sicily pissed off the daughter of Correct. an alleged mobster, and you set up the yes. meeting. And uh, I saw that one. That was great. yeah. That's kind of like my life, man. That's what I do every day. Jesus Christ. Sounds like Ira too. Good <laughs> idea with. <laughs> exactly. Well, well you know, but it's important to show the world. I mean, I think I think there's a big need for the world to see the inner workings of what I do, like and what Ira does, and how it works. You know, people people are hungry for that stuff. I think, and I, and I think that there's really there's really not great TV out there, especially in the reality world. There's nothing but substance, you know. And I'm kind of a conflicted guy because I've been on so many different sides of the coin. Like I'm a criminal defense attorney today. I was a street kid, you know, younger. But I was also a victim of a crime, so sometimes I'm just like, why do you know? What am I doing? How? Do, why do I do this? You know? And I'm a dad and I'm a husband, so there's a lot of there's a lot of dynamics to to my life. You know, it's not as easy as it looks. It's complicated. That's great, Gerard. Well, Gerard, listen, bud, I appreciate you taking time out of your uh, busy schedule. I know That's you're going pleasure. back to shoot your pilot, and we'd love to have you back on again sometime, right after the pilot starts awesome. to become a huge success. Thank you, Although yeah. Ira wants you to get make sure you're busy with your clients, so there's going to be bails that are coming up. So we got don't some spend more. too much time on the show. Yeah. We got some crime, more cases crime coming. Crime don't pay, guys. Just remember, crime don't pay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For me and you, it does, though. Yeah, a little bit. Only in the beginning, Ira. <laughs> and then they forget about us. Until they stop paying us, is right. Exactly. All right, Gerard. Thank you. Hey, brother. All be right, good. Boys. I'll talk to you soon. Nice chatting with you. So long. We want to thank Gerard Maroney for coming on to the show. He was fantastic. And uh, we will include in the episode show notes that, that actually will detail the YouTube videos where you can see Gerard's first few episodes before he got picked up by Pop Network. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll be talking about Bank America's high-frequency trading settlement that I know Ira cares deeply about. I'm sitting on my, my chair waiting for this to come Edge out. of your chair. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Bale Street. We get to now work on a topic near and dear to my heart, and that's high-frequency trading. And uh, I know we've talked about it already a few times. I was probably sick of it. No, no, no. Keep going. I love it. This was actually a major (laughs) thing that happened. So Bank America ends up admitting wrongdoing, coming out with a $42 million penalty that they're paying to the state of New York. So the Attorney General's Office of New York picked this up. It was a violation of the Martin Act. And basically what was found was that from 2008 to 2013, the electronic trading business at Bank of America, uh, which is, should be protected for all investors, when you put an order in, it was actually going into dark pools where certain high-frequency trading customers had access. And the most prevalent name that struck me, forget about some of the others, was Madoff. Bernie? And, yes. And By was, the way, Bernie is doing time with a very good I, friend of mine right now, Dan so, Butner. Good. That's good. We'll have him on then. We're trying to get him on. He walks the yard together. Yes. <laughs> they do. They walk the yard together. So Madoff was the chairman of NASDAQ in a previous career, and Madoff had two different businesses. He had the fake money management business, which was the Ponzi scheme, and then he had Madoff Securities, which was the original payment for order flow company. So he was one of the original market makers on Wall Street. Let's just say that. So this had to be towards the end. In 2008, he had to be very big in this high-frequency trading system because he got arrested in 2008. So the whole Has place shut down. Has it been that long? Yeah. That's when he was arrested. Wow. So anyway, basically, Bank of America was letting clients like me at the time believe that when I put an electronic trade in, an order in, that it was safe, that no one else was seeing it. They never disclosed that these participants were in their, quote, dark pool. And let me tell you why that's a major issue. It's a major issue because the people that are seeing it, these high-frequency traders, the whole idea of the market being rigged, this is where it comes from. They have, they're supposed to route those orders to the exchange, and they route them into the dark pool instead. And if they go into the dark pool first and these guys can see it, they have the ability to front-run your order and trade it even hundreds of times before you actually get any type of execution. Now, the argument's going to be— Now, wait. Uh, let me just stop you for one second, because on our last segment, which we talked to Gerard about, we talked about alleged wise guys. Uh, it, Wall Street's almost the same thing. Wall Street is just well as a, Michael Lewis had told on. I mean, Wall Street again is is just a legal way down on Wall Street of saying they're wise guys. Exactly, right. This is the scene literally in trading places where Eddie Murphy turns to Mortimer. He goes, "You guys are a bunch of bookies." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's basically what this is. Correct. And and what what's amazing is how sophisticated Wall Street wants you to make think these systems are, and they have all these names: Sigma X, this, that, and the other. You know, and and. That just is, is just fanfare to get you to not focus on what was really going on. So here's, I'm going to give you two arguments. One is that, oh, what's the big deal? These are electronic liquidity providers. They call them ELPs. That's what they call these high-frequency trading. They're not providing any liquidity at all. They're buying and selling the stock that you're trying to buy and sell 100 times before your trade is executed. And what and does that do to my trade if they're doing this? Here's the problem. You're getting a bad fill, but we're talking about, you know, hundreds of a penny bad fill. But here's the problem. You're not getting done on 10,000 shares, what you should be. You're getting done on 500 shares or 200 shares or 100 shares. And what happens is if you're at a hedge fund trying to get out of a stock or trying to buy a stock, get into a stock, your portfolio manager has no clue on how trading actually occurs. They see a stock move because you're trying to buy it and they think that you are actually filling the order poorly, that you've told somebody on the street that you're buying the stock. Well, you did tell someone on the street because these dark pools, supposed to be dark, they're lit as they could be because all these HFT firms see it. So you're, you're signaling, you're, you're showing your cards when you shouldn't. And here's where the economic penalty really exists. If I need to buy 200,000 shares of a stock and I go in to purchase it and try to start buying some of it in the dark pools and these signals are picked up by the high-frequency traders, they're moving the stock. And if I really want to keep buying it, I'm going to end up paying 1% or 2% more than I should have on that 200,000 shares than by signaling to these guys, and it would have been. So that's the economic 
detriment on these. And that's where these penalties. So they came up with a $42 million settlement based on what I, I can imagine. How did they come like, up with that number? It looked to be 4 billion shares they think were traded during that time period in these venues over this five-year period, which just doesn't sound like a lot of shares. I'm thinking that they just decided so, to put a penny or something. So they, on. They, they hit them civilly with the $42 million, but they're not coming after them they admitted criminally. So they admitted wrongdoing. So that means that, in my opinion, my previous funds— but How see, much money did they make that they're settling? Uh, way more. Th- way so, more I mean, than— That's the problem. Exactly. $42 well, million gets, is who nothing. Who gets that $42 oh, million anyway? Guess Where's who's paying the $42 million? The shareholders are paying it for Bank of America. There's no one being—the shareholders. The company's paying for it. But they made way more than $42 million. Well, and if, and if, you're not getting that money as somebody who might have lost out on it because well, of the actions. the question is, is that can you now go sue— Bank of America, I'm sure there's attorneys looking at it and say, hold on, my clients were trading in that dark pool from 2008 to, thir- to 2013. I want some type of restitution. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it should. They just admitted it. And the B- Bank of America spokesperson came out last week and said, oh, we informed our clients that as of five years ago, we're no longer doing this practice. Well, that's helpful because it would have been better if they had done that in 2013, but they do it in 2018 saying they quit. And you know why they quit it in 2013? They quit because... Michael Lewis was working on his article. The book Dark Pools was out. The book Broken Markets by Saluzzi and Arnick was out. And it was becoming pretty clear that the, the writing was on the wall. They needed to basically get rid of this. There was emails. If you look at the settlement, it's disgusting. And what's crazy about it is I met these people in our office. They convinced us to go into their pools. And, and anyone that knows me knows that. Let me that, ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. And what, what, what Bell Street is, obviously, is, is the crossover of your world and my world. How many people have walked into your office and pitched you some different ideas that you believe should have been in my office basically looking at bail? That or I said there will be in your office if they actually go through with one of these. Yeah, exactly. But there's just this unwritten protection code on Wall Street that, again, if you it's make It's almost like the blue code of, uh, yeah. of the police department. Right. It's just it, – and, you know, some people don't care. Some people don't care. But this is, again, is the market rigged? In certain instances, it's 1,000% rigged. Let me give you, give me this last example so people truly understand. You could be the CEO of a biotech company, okay? So and you I'm, not, uh, so you'll be the CEO. I, I, I want to be the CEO. You'll be the okay, CEO. I'm CEO. You've now cured cancer. Okay? Which, by the way, I've been looking into. Right, and I'm sometime, okay? Happen. Nice God, work, Aaron. God willing, okay? So I'm at, out to dinner with you on a Sunday night, and you say to me, Danny, by the way, Tuesday, we're going to announce that we've cured cancer. Okay, obviously, I would never trade on that. You would never disclose that, but hopefully the world would receive the treatment. That would be great. But let's just say that was the case. There's a 99% chance that your, your stock, if it's publicly traded, is going to soar on that news that you've got. Okay. So I decide illegally to purchase call options or stock in your company on Monday. The announcement comes out Tuesday. Stock probably is up a lot. But there's a chance that it's not. There's a chance that somebody found some, some issue with your cure that, or was built into the stock price, whatever reason it went down. So it's not 100% guarantee that I'm going to make money on that. Okay. We agree on that? We agree. Okay. In this instant, these high-frequency trading firms that get involved in these dark pools, have 100% certainty to make money. They see the orders coming in on the buy side. They see the orders coming in on the sell side. If they don't want to interact with your order when it comes in, they pass. But if they choose to interact, it means that their computer algorithms have found the other side of your trade already that makes it a riskless trade for them. And they call themselves liquidity providers. They're doing nothing but but just making micropenny, micropenny, micropenny. How do you stop it? Thousand times. Well, they're either through these fines where they, correct, they self-correct or there's been major dark pool fines which have gone on, but people have to become smarter in the way that they trade. And here's the other thing. Bank of America is the largest retail, I think it is the largest retail Merrill Lynch in the country. I haven't seen a settlement in here about retail. I'm certain that their retail orders were coming through certain pools just like this. And I haven't seen that yet, but if I'm a Bank of America customer on the institutional side on Wall Street or on the retail side, I'm pissed. 
And I want to know what, what they're doing to protect us. Because, again, Wall Street has a knack for taking advantage of the unknowing customer, right, at, for their own benefit. And if you read the settlement, and it'll be in our notes in the show, if you want to attach and read, just read through the settlement and you'll see. But I, I got to tell you, rarely, hold on, rarely do you see admitting of wrongdoing. Every settlement I see is we don't admit wrong, deny but wrong. Why do you think they're admitting to wrongdoing? Because they're they were, probably afraid no, there's of emails. Else to come oh no, they have emails on them. They had a whistleblower in there. Because they're I'm sure, afraid so. of other stuff coming out. So yeah. why not just cut it out? Pay the forty-two million. We made a zillion dollars, and let's move forward. Exactly. So I urge you guys to read this thing if you have any interest at all in high-frequency trading. And and uh, you know this is not new, but it's still these settlements are still coming out as disturbing to me. And uh, wherever you're trading, you should ask yourself, you know, is my is my order being treated correctly? So. That's it for this episode of Bale Street. Ira, what do we have coming up? Uh, what we're going to try to do in the next couple weeks is bring on Stacey Richmond, uh, another top defense attorney in New York, a female attorney who uh, has represented some high, powerful clients such as Ja Rule, DMX, some alleged mobsters also, and, and you know Little Wayne. So uh, hopefully we can get Stacey to come on and maybe even Stacey bring on one of her, uh, her hip-hop stars. Sounds good. And I'm going to have uh, some um, private equity guys dealing in a lot of really interesting areas. Cannabis has been an area of... Uh, that you've pretty much involved with? No, I mean slightly, but <laughs> but uh, but from an investment perspective, I think it's a huge opportunity. So we're going to certainly touch on that subject in the future. Well, yeah, they, they, I mean, listen, they're trying to uh, legalize you know marijuana all over the place. I mean, it's done in Colorado, California, all over. So who knows what's going to happen here in New York? See you next week on Bale Street. I'm Danny Moses. I'm Ira Jettleson. You've been listening to Bale Street. Learn more and subscribe today at BaleStreet.com.